I, I would basically come home after school and I would go on the investor relations uh, sections of company websites and I would order the physical annual report. And these just stacked up into like giant boxes in my closet. And if I go to my parents' house today, they still, they're still there. But yeah, I just read a bunch of annual reports and made a bunch of different stock investments. Welcome B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, and grownups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Our guest today is Blair Silverberg. He's CEO at Capital, a financial services company using technology to accelerate the fundraising process. He recently closed $9 million and is backed by Jerry Yang of AME Cloud Ventures and Steve Jurvetson of Future Ventures. Uh, before founding Capital, he was a principal investor at Draper Fisher Jurvetson, where he sourced and managed venture investments for the firm, focusing primarily on software as a service and artificial intelligence. He is a native of Austin, Texas, and it is our pleasure to have him with us on the podcast. Blair, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So legend has it that you were able to turn $2,500 in bar mitzvah money into $200,000 through investing. I don't know where that legend came from, but uh, it's rough. It's roughly right. It was more like $5,000 into $100,000, but I think it's, you know, yes, but that legend is true. Well, let's hear it. So what are you 13 years old day trading? I mean, what, how did, how did you do it? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of value investing. And so when I was a kid, I don't even know at what age, like maybe 10, I started reading Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, um, John Williams, Philip Fisher, essentially every Warren Buffett book I could get my hands on. And, you know, essentially, like, back in, back in those days, uh, value investing was still cool. And so I just made a bunch of investments. Like I invested in coach before it was really a thing. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the banks, I mean, I, I just growing up, I had like, I, I would basically come home after school and I would go on the investor relations, uh, sections of company websites and I would order the physical annual report. And these just stacked up into like giant boxes in my closet. And if I go to my parents' house today, they still, they're still there. But yeah, I just read a bunch of annual reports and made a bunch of different stock investments. At 13, you're reading annual reports. How do you make sense of the financial statements? I didn't, I didn't really understand financial statements back then. Like certainly looking backwards, <laughs> I missed a lot of key things. But yeah, I just tried to read and follow along. And, um, you know, my dad's always loved investing. And so we would talk about stocks. I don't know why I liked investing so much. I mean, now I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about it, having been a professional investor now for the vast majority of my career. But um, yeah, but back then, I think I was just fascinated with businesses um, being kind of living, breathing examples of the economy at work. And so I felt like every time I learned about a new business, I was learning about how the economy actually works. I was sort of getting getting more kind of informed as a, as a citizen and, you know, investor and, and so on and so forth. So, so what was it about your childhood or your upbringing, I mean, aside from white privilege, that led you to where you are today? <laughs> that aside, I think my parents played a pretty big role. Obviously, the genetic, you know, randomness, you know, totally, uh, you know, complete and total luck. But um, to, to have a, an aptitude that I met, 
you know, with actual experience. But, um, but no, I mean, I, for some reason I can't possibly, you know, explain what got me started in this. I mean, even when I was like six or seven, I, I would, my grandmother would give me beanie babies, um, for Hanukkah basically on my birthday. And I would take these beanie babies and I would search around on the internet and sell them online, like early version of eBay, basically. Like when I was like six or seven, I mean, I, I don't know why I got so into, you know, investing and trading. And actually my partner at Capital, um, Chaba, grew up in Hungary uh, under communism and very similar story. When he was a teenager, he basically drove to Italy, uh, bought a car, brought it back, sold it, drove to Italy the next weekend, bought two cars, brought it back, sold it. And he sort of started trading uh, in the stock market in a very organic fashion too. So I think there's just some weirdos out there that, that are interested in this stuff from a very young age. Pro tip, many years ago, I did the public relations for Beanie Babies. And we created what we called a mountain of Beanie Babies at Toy Fair at Javits Center. Okay. And, and we got the most valuable ones. And we, we put out a media call of how we had this million-dollar uh, a Beanie Baby Mountain, and it was a feeding frenzy. And then E did a one-hour special just on Beanie Babies, and an independent publisher launched a magazine called Mary Beth's Beanie World that started publishing a buyer's guide. Totally. So we, we definitely poured gas the, on that fire. Who changed? Who changed the tags? Because like you would have these Beanie Babies that had a tag that had a different name. And that became like a major kind of collectible. So you could sell those things for like, it's like a $5 toy. You could basically sell them for like 1200 bucks. I wonder who came up with that. The tags. Yeah. I guess that was probably, uh, I would imagine that was a tie thing, the manufacturer, because, you know, they're so easy to knock off. So if they put some sort of tag on them, I guess they could authenticate them that way. Yeah, I guess so. But they would change like the names on the them, blockchain so. of plush. Plush. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, that's so, so. So when you think back to your childhood and you know all these, all this you were doing and this investing that you did, what's the biggest lesson you learned as a young investor that still stays with you today? Um, definitely that stays with me today, particularly as an entrepreneur, is um, pause, take a breath. Think about things from first principles. Don't follow the crowd instinctively. I mean, I think that is a lesson that I've, I've tried to put to work in my life over and over and over again. And, you know, if you think about it in the context of running a business, I mean, we track like 100 companies that are at some level competitive with us. And you can be just all day long responding to things that you're hearing and reading, like, you know, kind of ping-ponging back and forth. Like, oh, this company did this. Maybe we should do that. And you really have to think about what you're trying to do, what you're trying to build from first principles and not get distracted. And I, I think I just initially learned that lesson in investing when you have all these great investors who there's some, you know, massive financial bubble inflating like in the late nineties. And they said, I'm not investing in technology companies at all. <laughs> like Warren Buffett did. Um, same thing repeats itself, you know, in cycles and panics and, you know, even going back to the tulip panic and the, in, uh, in the 1600s. I mean, so I think there's just something about people who study investing that makes them um, comfortable being mavericks to a certain extent. And it just so, it just so happens that being a maverick in entrepreneurship is sort of the, the key to the kingdom. 
it's like the secret, the secret weapon if you're comfortable standing out and just doing things differently. So, Blair, we are in an unprecedented time. I think if you look back at the Spanish flu, the depression followed about 10 years later, some, something in that ballpark. So the, the economy didn't respond right away to the Spanish flu. And now we obviously are in this global pandemic and the market still is quite high. What do you think? Are we in a bubble? That's, I mean, I think the, the short answer there is you have to start with what's different about now versus history. Most things in history kind of rhyme. There's a lot of similarities, but what's fundamentally different now? There's $350 trillion of global stock of wealth. It's just kind of sitting there and it accumulates every year as global GDP creates surplus and that wealth pile increases. This is something that's kind of growing cumulatively. So there's a ton of capital and wealth that can be turned into productive capital just kind of sitting there. At the same time, interest rates are exceptionally low. And so we're not in a temporary bubble. This is not like, you know, 2007, uh, the housing crisis is about to show itself. Bubble's going to pop. There's going to be massive pain. I mean, this is, this is kind of like a debt super cycle like Rodalia talks about. And so we're just in a time where things seem weird. Like asset prices are extremely inflated. But as you've seen, not even a global pandemic is able to pop those asset prices. And so... I, I don't want to take your, your listeners off on a complete and total tangent here, but I think of this 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 weirdness that we're seeing on a very long time scale. I mean, what, it really goes back to a lot of the stuff that Ray Dalio talks about. Like, we're seeing a huge amount of wealth that's accumulated and a real tension emerging between the U.S. and China. And this bubble isn't going to pop from a pandemic or any other kind of short-term shock. It's going to pop from a transition of global superpower from the U.S., to China. And that typically happens as Ray Dalio so eloquently writes about over fairly long periods of time, like, you know, a few decades. And so I think from an investor's perspective, immediately, like there's just not that much to worry about. Um, but if you look at things like the Ant financial IPO that's going on right now, I mean, the largest IPO in history, in history, larger than Saudi Aramco, is taking place without the involvement of any U.S. stock exchange. It's happening in two exchanges, in Hong Kong and in Shanghai. Zero involvement in the largest IPO in history by the global financial superpower. That's just like a fascinating moment that's happening right now. And we're going to look back on this and say, oh, that was kind of the... <laughs> that's when Archduke Franz Ferdinand got you know, assassinated before World War I. Like, that was the event that catalyzed this transition in the global balance of power. Um, but yeah, there's not going to be a short-term bubble pop. So, so what does all this mean for startups? Uh, I'm curious to know what types of deals are getting done post-COVID. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, you know, at, at Capital, we, um, we make investments directly into companies and we see kind of thousands, thousands of companies. And increasingly, there's a lot of things that we're, we're going to announce in the not-too-distant future that give us quite broad visibility into how the private markets work. So we see a, a ton of kind of information and, and activity that's happening. The lessons I can derive from those are a few. So number one, there's a bunch of businesses that have gotten actually better because of COVID. Some secular change that was happening anyway, like Zoom or Slack would be the classic kind of public market examples of this. But there are a bunch of private examples too. 
some secular trend just accelerated as people literally had to, for example, order food by delivery because they can't go to restaurants anymore. We have, we have a couple of holdings and food delivery businesses where like, you know, those businesses just got much better basically overnight. And there's been no deterioration to that. You know, they've gotten more efficient. So not all businesses have suffered from, from COVID. Um, but yeah, there are certainly some, but I would say if I step back, like the markets are still functioning pretty well and deals are getting done. We also crossed the, or across the, the threshold of will deals get done over Zoom? The answer is yes. <laughs> and many tens of billions of dollars have been put to work now over Zoom. Therefore, we can expect that that will continue. Um, so really, I think the businesses that are getting uh, most uh, hit are businesses that were already facing some sort of a, a secular headwind, like in-person retail, uh, in-person dining, you know, a lot of the in-person activities and the only ones that are basically saved from that are businesses like healthcare where, you know, there's still a lot of in-person activity and it kind of makes sense. But, but I would definitely say the markets are more or less functioning normally. How many, how many pitches are you getting weekly or monthly? Yeah. I mean, at any point in time, we see like on the average of like 25 to 50 companies, it just depends on the week that are kind of actively. And this is like thoroughly pitching us. And we see a lot more that are kind of peripherally, um, telling us what they're up to. But yeah, so we're, we're kind of talking that volume and like literally for every, every vertical in the economy, I mean, tech companies, non-tech companies, you know, late stage investments, early stage investments. Uh, so yeah, we just see a lot. Has the number changed since March? No, there's been blips like uh, in early April, uh, there were no pitches, but the second week in April, <laughs> there were, I'd have to think about it, like maybe three times more pitches than usual. So there, there are little blips here and there, but in general, no, pitches haven't changed. So you said, you know, one of the principles of investing is not necessarily following the pack, looking at the fundamentals. So when you look at the types of deals or the types of startups that are, um, that are pitching and trying to get funding right now, is there a sort of a pack herd category that's taken off as a result of, of COVID? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I mean like some of the SaaS companies and the companies, but this is more in the public markets than in the private markets. I mean like Snowflake being worth whatever, you know, revenue multiple it is now that's like just so exceptionally high. This is more of a public market phenomenon, but yeah, definitely in the public markets, like the Bessemer SaaS index companies have exceptionally high multiples because generally society is buying into the idea that these are the companies of the future. And it's very hard, particularly in a zero interest rate environment to know how big the future is, especially in asset prices. But that's much more of a public market phenomenon. I mean, the private markets uh, back to this kind of global stock of wealth that's accumulating are consistently growing in just size and intensity of competition. But it's not like there's been an inflection point post post COVID, if that makes sense. How are you driving deal flow now? Now that, you know, there are so many restrictions, you can't meet with people in person, there's no conferences. How are you maintaining a pipeline? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so the way capital works is a little different. So we have uh, an analytics system that sits at the core of what we do. And the way we describe what we do is capital as a service. And so we built this analytics system that companies use to analyze their financial data, 
do business planning, plan fundraising processes, so on and so forth. So that tool sits at the core of what we do. And then around that tool, we do this thing called capital as a service, which is we actually provide capital to businesses based off of what they show us their data is inside of this tool. So because of that, we have a lot of people that come to capital just because they're using this tool anyway. They're sort of opting into financing, financing offers. So it's very different than the traditional firm where I would be like, back when I was a venture capitalist at DFJ, like I would be sending a bunch of emails, setting up Zoom calls for 30 minutes, listening to pitches. I mean, we really don't do that at all. So our deal flow is very different fundamentally. But from what I hear from my friends who, who run more traditional deal flow, deal sourcing processes, I mean, they're just doing a lot of Zoom calls and sending a lot of emails to people. On the other side, you know, you're, you're invested in a lot of companies and uh, a lot of B2Bs, you know, it's not just hospitality and the convention circuit that got hit. So did all the deals that used to get done at these trade shows and conventions because the trade shows and conventions aren't happening anymore. Yeah. So really, you know, feeding the pipeline is a challenge for a lot of people right now, particularly those who were sort of digital laggards and relied on pressing the flesh and sort of old school tactics to do deals. Are you seeing uh, kind of that impact any of your, um, uh, any of the companies in your portfolio? And if so, how are they dealing with that? Not really. I mean, I do think there's a bias toward companies that choose to use capital basically in their, our, our, our company capital in their business. Um, they're a little bit more tech friendly. They have online systems of record, which by the way, 80% of companies now have um, the vast majority of their financial systems of record, at least in the cloud. So this is an uncommon kind of set of companies, but yeah, I mean, we really don't see like the business that was only getting deal do deals done at trade shows. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are getting deals done at Zoom conferences. I, mean, I, I just attended my first one last week. One of our, our venture investors had one. Um, and it was fascinating. I mean, you can listen to the talk. You can, like, jump out to a room to network with people. I mean, it was almost like a replica of the real thing, except for it was much more efficient. <laughs> I didn't have to leave my house. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's, it's fair to say that the, the conference circuit is dead. I think there's just going to be a lot of like modifications to what, what that looks like. I spent a decade flying all over the world, leading these seminars where people would come into a, a conference room, open a laptop, and go through a series of tutorials. And I used to think to myself, this is ridiculous. Why are you kidding me? And so I, I, you know, I tried for so long to get people to go online and do it online. It took a freaking pandemic. And then it to make it happen. <laughs> That's what it took, man. I mean, people just didn't want to use Zoom or or go to meeting or 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 log me in or join me or any of the guys. I mean, I don't know why it is Zoom inherited the mantle. Do you? I mean, go to meeting seemed like they were doing pretty well. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, one of our investors was the founding investor in Zoom and um, was on the board for a long time. I mean, what I know about Zoom is they just absolutely crushed tech, technical execution. Like they built a great product that took advantage of all of the codec changes and in and, um, and devices now that had video capabilities. So like they built a great product and then I think they got, they're just kind of an amazing beneficiary of this. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure. Every, everyone's talking about re remote workforce management now. Yeah. 
and Slack has that nailed, but their yeah. stock hasn't hasn't jumped as a result of of the pandemic, at least not significantly, not like Zoom has. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think that Slack's probably gone up gone up quite a bit, but I'm not I'm not totally sure about Slack. But yeah, I mean, I'm I think a shareholder. I am a shareholder. I don't do a lot of risk. I'm capital, not liked, is what you're that's saying. one. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So you're getting these pitches now. You, they used to come into the office and pitch, and now they're pitching over Zoom. Right. What makes a great Zoom pitch? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, so uh, first, it's much easier to raise money over Zoom if you can articulate what's actually happening in your business particularly with metrics if they exist. So I think what's fundamentally changed, like when I used to get a bunch of in-person kind of office pitches, someone could come in with a lot of charisma. You could have a you know 30 minute pitch and you leave the pitch and you're like, that's a great business. And if you really think about like, what do you know about the business? The answer was not, not much. That's just a very charismatic person. That's a lot harder to do over Zoom. So I think businesses that can come in and articulate what their metrics look like, what's fundamentally working in the business, they have an advantage, you know, from our seat now at capital. I mean, we see a lot of businesses because I mentioned they're using this analytics tool, uh, first through the metrics. And so metrics are front and center to our pitch, you know, Hey, I'm investing a dollar in sales and marketing. My inside sales force is turning that into $3 in gross margin, you know, on an annualized basis. Like I'm getting a three X my sales and marketing spend. And as long as I pour money into that, that's going to keep growing in my business until the point that it diminishes. And that's a long way away. Like that's a very easy pitch to do a resume. Um, I think some of the conceptual pitches, I mean, like one of our, one of our venture investors, um, Steve Jurvetson is a, a, he, I used to work with him at DFJ. He's, um, kind of, I, I would argue like the best deep tech venture capitalist of all time. I've seen some of his companies pitch deep tech, like nuclear fusion, for example. I mean, just things that are like incredibly technical, no cohort math in an incredibly convincing way. How do they do it? Basically, they show videos of really cool things working, <laughs> and then they show slides that make very clear how their technology is working and what milestones are hitting. But I think the onus there is much more on like make clear with visuals why this thing I'm building is working if it's a deep tech company. But outside of that category, if you've got metrics, I mean, you just have to totally lean into the what the metrics are telling people about your business, and hopefully, it's good things. I remember I used to like to watch that show Entourage on HBO and there'd be like an episode where Ari Gold, you know, the, um, uh, the character, the, the, the talent agent would do something funny. And the next day I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. The next day I have a buddy who runs a big talent agency and I would say, Hey, did you see the episode of Entourage with Ari Gold? And he would be like, dude, I don't watch that show. Okay. I, I live that. I don't watch that. So let me ask you this. Have you ever watched Shark Tank? And and how do you think, do those pitches, I mean, would those work with you? Uh, no, I mean, we actually, perversely, we've uh, we've seen, and we might have even invested in some Shark Tank companies. I'd have to, to check with my team. Like, I know we've seen some Shark Tank companies. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, it's a very similar idea. Like, watching, watching Shark Tank, for me, my mother loves it. Watching Shark Tank is like, watching er if you're an er doctor it's like the same it's like I, I i just recoil like i can't have it on for more than like two you know two seconds um no those pitches are like salacious they're like totally totally hyperbolic you know in order to create entertainment like a real pitch gets into the meat of what's going on in the business and uh you know it it should have 
a sprinkling of why this thing is changing the world, particularly if it's a venture pitch versus like a kind of a credit steady state business, you know, those pitches can be much more quantitatively oriented, but yeah, it should have a sprinkling of like why my mission is exciting and why this is changing the world. Um, but it's nothing like Shark Tank. So I'm interested to know what makes a startup fundable. And I know when you go to your website, there's a little button and you can say, it says, see if you qualify. So what qualifies a startup as a potential investment candidate? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so there's there's really two kind of answers to this. Postmetrics, pre-metrics. The postmetrics answer, which is where we focus on capital. I mean, the average business that we work with has north of call it $10 million of run rate revenue all the way up to, you know, multi hundreds of millions of dollars. And so for those businesses, what makes them qualify is very straightforward. If they're growing, they spend a dollar and they get more than a dollar back in return so they can grow efficiently. There's a lot of businesses, WeWork's kind of the canonical example where they spend a dollar and they got 70 cents back. It's very easy to grow your revenue to be enormous very quickly by giving away dollars for 70 cents, but that's not a business. And so businesses that are, that are growing efficiently, you know, at some level qualify for financing, certainly from us, from, from most investors. And that's kind of the growth side of the equation. Then there's the, what business already exists today, the growth that's happened up until now, until the moment of the pitch, is that going to continue as some durable stream of revenue and cash flows or is that going to decay? And so there's just different businesses that have different basically decay patterns. So like a business like Slack, you know, has a bunch of users, the more users that each of the underlying companies using Slack add, the higher the revenue per company. So Slack sort of has this, this thing that's like a growing annuity on its own. And if they don't spend another dollar in sales and marketing, it's going to be a lot bigger next year than it was this year. That's a phenomenal business. Businesses that need some sort of kind of consistent investment just to stay flat because, say, all of their users eventually are kind of turning off to zero, then it's just really a question of like how fast are they declining? What's the investment needed? That's all kind of the quantitative side. On the qualitative side, the pre-metrics you know, version of a company, that's where early stage venture magic really is. And there, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but essentially every venture investor will come back to saying there's some combination of product market team. Some will, te- some will say market team product. Some will say you know team product market. There's different orders that people value these different things. But at the end of the day, you're assessing each of those three things. And you're trying to just get a picture of, is this person going to break through walls and do what's necessary to actually do the logistics of building a business in a market that's fundamentally changing? Because change is good for disruption, even if you can't predict exactly what the change is going to be. And then do they have a product that's actually working? But I want to make clear like that dividing line between the post-metrics and the pre-metrics pitch. What's the role of PR and marketing in the startup fundraising process? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, it, it depends on the company. So there are, <laughs> I, I always say there's, there's kind of two ways to build a business in the short term, but in the long term, there's only one way. In the short term, you can have a lot of stake or a lot of sizzle. Either one kind of works. doesn't really matter. Any combination of the two, you know. So PR can get businesses off the ground that just would not have gotten off the ground. In the long run, and this goes back to like, you know, Benjamin Graham, the, the one of the, the famous kind of investment authors I was referencing earlier, says in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, the market is a weighing machine. In the long term, stake only matters. Like you can't be Amazon without actually having 
all of the nuts and bolts in place to deliver what Amazon delivers. And so their PR is just much more of a compliment to what's already happening in the business. You do have to work to evangelize and get the message out and say, hey, this is what we're actually doing in a succinct, clear way. But, um, but yeah, in the early days, like, you know, different companies, some use it as a competitive advantage, some don't use it as all, at all. They can be equally successful in the medium and the long term. If, if you had invested in my company and I was a CEO and you're heavily invested and I come to you and I say, hey, I need a PR person. How do I pick? How do I find a good one? What would you tell me? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also a great question. I think that um, first, the person should quickly understand what you're trying to do. Like in a week, they have it in their head. Um, you know, some of our best PR people just did that. It was like magic. They just got it quickly. Um, second, they should be able to do what you fundamentally can't as a business builder. You can't, you're, you're building your business. You're in the weeds, you're in the details. You can't step back and say, how do I explain this succinctly to my grandmother? You can sometimes, but not in any given day of the week. Like it's very hard for me to come, you know, explain to somebody succinctly what our business does. If I've been working with, you know, the engineering team or one of our, you know, one of our principal investing teams, like you know, day in and day out to do something. And so what a good PR person does is they simplify the message and they make it very clear. And then the third thing they do is they amplify that. And they know all the techniques and channels and so on and so forth. And so I would just say, you have to, you have to find someone who gets it quickly and then has those other two ingredients. And it's usually pretty obvious. Do you have any sort of rubric for how you evaluate whether or not uh, a PR or a marketing person gets your business concept? Or is it just sort of um, how you feel or how, well, you know, because I would imagine, you know, pre-COVID, if the PR person is charismatic, that might go just as far as the person that's pitching the pitching the new business. So now I guess, are, are you hiring uh, uh, PR and marketing people on Zoom these days? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're right to sort of say, although salespeople are much higher, much harder to, to hire, um, they're even kind of, I think, better at, <laughs> at being all charisma and you know, you only find the results out once they've, they've started. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that the Socratic method is your friend. So if you can just ask people, okay, what are you hearing about what the business does? Where, you, where do you think this is going in 12 months? How do we do what we do? And those get played back to you in a way that actually makes sense of the nuts and bolts of what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's a pretty good tool to, to suss out if someone's all charisma or if they're actually understanding the and listening and kind of casting back to you what what the business does. What do you absolutely need to see from a startup before you consider investing in them? Well for us, you know, we're very metrics oriented. So like we literally have to see dollar goes into something like sales and marketing, more than one dollar comes out. Like that's exceptionally simple. And there are, there are all sorts of nuances around how you think about that for a shipping container fleet versus a SaaS business versus an oil field services company. And that's basically the magic of what our system, the capital machine makes easy for us as investors. But fundamentally, like that's the question you're trying to answer with it, with the growing business. Um, it's really pretty straightforward. It's just about answering that question with discipline every time. At what stage in a startup's development should they be shopping for investors? When aren't they ready and when are they ready? 
well, there's different rounds. I mean, so like I, I sometimes make, you know, angel investments in companies where like I'm in the friends and family round of the entrepreneur I used to work with, who I think has a great idea. And so like, there's basically no point at which that kind of investment is too early. That's not something we would do through capital. Um, but you know, that stage, it's like, I have a clear idea about back to those three things, team, product, market. There is a market that's in flux. Here's the product I want to build for it. And here's the team that I either have or plan to assemble. Once you have those three questions answered concisely, you're eligible for your friends and family financing with zero results or metrics. The next stage, the seed round is much more about, okay, here's what I've been doing so far to build out my product and team. And here's some early results I have, even if conceptual, I've talked to a hundred customers. I've created profiles that explain that in fact, these hundred people are really just three kind of types of customer. And here's how my product visions evolved to be very specific. That's kind of what you need to be able to say to see now. So, so for these startups, for these early round startups that are going out to angels, what use of funds is appropriate and not appropriate? And how does that impact whether or not you decide to invest? Yeah, it's pretty much 100% building a team. Like people that know what they're doing at that early stage, the, the entire risk is can you build a team and motivate them around a single goal and execute together in lockstep for the first 12 months. I mean, honestly, yeah, I just remember back to the early days when we founded Capital. And I think back, I mean, that is the hardest, the hardest part about getting a business started. So you don't need to see a proof of concept. If it's a good idea and a good team at the angel round, you might go for it. Correct. 100%. And I think that answer is pretty clear across most good angel investors. And if someone's listening to this podcast and they'd like you to consider their investment idea, what's the best way for them to get in front of you? Ooh, probably on Twitter at, at Blair Silverberg. Um, probably the easiest way. Blair, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.